0: Good morning. You guys doing well? Good. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter two. We have now made it to chapter two in this study through the book of Ephesians. Our teaching series, Life, there's an app for that. Today we're gonna talk about being alive in Christ. This is one of the richest texts in the Bible on what it means to be a Christian. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you are a Christian, these verses will confirm you. If you think you're a Christian but not, these verses will correct you. And if you have rejected Christianity, then you'll know if what you rejected is truly the Christian faith and not some false idea of it. Many who reject Christianity aren't rejecting Christianity, but their false idea of it. I really believe that because I'm convinced that if you understood Christianity, um, it is irresistible, it is uh, breathtaking, it is captivating. When you begin to understand more clearly what God thinks about you, feels about you, towards you, and what He wants to do in and through your life, you won't run from Him. You will run to Him. And uh, and so oftentimes when people, I see people running from God, I always kind of like wonder, what? Why would you diss God? Why would you go the other way? And I just can't help but think that probably they're running from their false idea of God, their wrong concept of God. Let me give you the thesis statement for our study here this morning. You were dead, verse 1 is going to tell us that, but God, verse 4, made you alive, verse 5. That's in our text. So let me say that again. Thesis statement. You were dead, but God made you alive. How did He make us alive? Typically, when you read through a text of Scripture, you're going to want to look for the big idea. That's the big idea of these uh, ten verses. But how does He make us alive? There's three verses that makes it very clear. Verse 5 in our text, we're going to be reading in just a moment. It says, by grace you have been saved. Verse 7, the immeasurable riches of His grace... And then verse 8, by grace you have been saved. So it says it a couple times in there. It really talks about God's grace. So we were dead, but God made us alive, and He did that by His grace. And we're going to talk about God's grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's once again go before the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, you have said in your word, Matthew 18, we're two. Or more are gathered in your name, you are with them. And so, Father God, we are gathered in your wonderful, powerful name and know you are here and that there is a dynamic of your presence here that we cannot experience alone. Nothing we desire compares to the surpassing worth of knowing you. You are our most satisfying reality. As we study your word, may your affections. For us, awaken and stir up our affections for You. May this text confirm Christians, correct those who think they're Christians but not, and those who have rejected You because of their false idea of You, may it convey to them the light of the irresistible gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at Ephesians 2. I'll read through the text. Like the rest of mankind, now here's this, the big but God, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. That is a, that is a wonderful verse. Here we are in our mess, but God intervenes. He rescues us. That's, that's the story of History that man made a mess of this place and God sent His Son to rescue us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace You have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... Notice how he describes this. This is great here. He might show the immeasurable riches, immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's read the next one, two, three verses together. This is, we'll, we'll end the reading by reading these together. These are powerful verses. I'm sure you've heard them before. Here we go. One, two, three. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Powerful text. Oh, my goodness sakes. (laughs) This is a feast. This is brunch. Actually, it's not late enough for brunch. This is breakfast, okay? It was a great breakfast spiritual breakfast and so he's got some really good things here for us. So three questions we're looking at. Why do we need to be made alive? That's pretty obvious in verses 1 through 3. Next question we'll look at is what does it mean to be made alive? Verses 8 through 10, those verses we just read answers that question. What does it mean to be made alive? And then the last question we'll look at is how are we made alive? Verses 4 through 7 make that pretty clear for us. So first question, why do we need to be made alive? First fill in the blank on your notes, because outside of God, we are spiritually dead. That's very clear in verse 1. Colossians 2.13, Revelations 3.1, and then we have a great example of this deadness found in Luke 15.32. Remember the story of the prodigal sons, both sons, the one that stayed home with the father. He had left the father without leaving the farm, the elder brother. The younger brother took the inheritance and went out and spent it on some pretty wild living, and when the younger brother came back home, what did the father say? He said, once he was dead, but now he's alive. Isn't that interesting, interesting kind of a metaphor, but it's actually true, it's real as it relates to us spiritually. Dead means we are helpless as a dead body spiritually. That just means that we can't do anything about our spiritual condition. There's not a thing we can do about it. When I was on the fire department, I was a medic for 10 years, uh, and uh, so we had this criteria that we would work off of when we would identify that someone was obviously dead. When we get called out on a code, anybody, you guys know what a code is? Someone needs to be resuscitated, CPR, we'd start IVs, intubate, do all the stuff that paramedics do. But sometimes someone would call early in the morning and typically it would be classified as a 901H. 901H would be obviously dead. And so there was criteria that we would use to identify that. Some of that criteria would be rigor mortis. I mean, that would be obviously dead. I hate to, I, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. But I uh, actually went on one call where someone was doing CPR on a patient and uh, this person had rigor mortis. They were trying to do CPR and I was like, uh, they're already dead, we're sorry. You know, when your mouth is opened up, like, stuck, and you can't get a good seal around the mouth, that's a bad sign. And so you probably didn't even want to hear that, but uh, that was what was some of the interesting things that we went on. So there was rigor mortis. Rigor mortis is just stiffness. You've obviously been dead for a while. Another one would be uh, decomposition. Your body is actually decomposing. When I was a booter on Engine 21, the senior firefighter, I, I think they were just messing with me. But they actually had me put the EKG monitor on this person that had been dead, and actually decomposition was actually happening. Their body was deteriorating. Pretty ugly, pretty stinky. And I was like, what the heck you want me to do? I'm going to put the EKG on them? And you've never done that before, have you, James, to anybody? James is a paramedic with Phoenix. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. And so, so see if I get this right, James. So you've got uh, rigor mortis, uh, decomposition, how about decapitation? That's pretty obvious, huh? That person's dead if their, their head is disconnected from their body. And then the other one is dependent lividity. It's a little, bit, a little bit harder to see, but it's almost kind of like if they've died and you roll them, there's almost like a bruising that's going on, in, you know, on their back. And so now you know how to identify if somebody's really, really, really dead, okay? Only here at Desert Breeze you're going to learn that. <laughs> Praise God. So there you go. But uh, the Bible would say that you have rigor mortis. You're decapitated. You have decomposition. You have dependent lividity going on in your life. There's are a the thing that you can do about your spiritual condition. That's basically what he's saying. And, uh, and what's interesting about this is that people who reject God through spirit, people who reject God, though spiritually dead, Can maintain the illusion of being alive without God because in God's kindness, He hasn't withdrawn all of His good gifts. So they can almost feel like they're dead and still but because of the good gifts that they're experiencing, they're still disconnected from God. And the Bible says, No, no matter how good life might be, you're still dead. You're dead spiritually. So here's my question for you. I want you to discuss it with the people sitting around you. What are the three enemies that seek to enslave us that every Christian must battle against every day? It's the answer to the next point on your notes. What are the three enemies that seek to enslave us that every Christian must battle against every day? Turn to the person next to you and see if they can identify because this is part of the deadness. This is what contributes to our deadness. You need to know this as a Christian. You need to know what you're up against. You have you face this every day. Anybody want to yell out to me what you think it is? What is the, what's the answer? Satan, the world, self. Yeah, you got it. Three right there. It's on your notes. We're enslaved to and that's what we see in verses 2 and 3. We're enslaved to society, the world, the values of this world, Satan. And then sinful self or sinful nature. Let me read the verses again. So it says, in which you once walked. So he said, you're dead. And how do you know you're dead? Is because you are enslaved. So it says, in which you once walked. Following. Following is kind of a weak… Following actually means, in the Greek, it means that you are enslaved. You are enslaved to the course of this world, so the values of this world following the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan, we have an adversary, fallen angel, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and then verse 3 gives us, really talks about our sinful nature, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So you can see how it's really laid out perfectly for us there. It just says, hey, we're dead. This contributes to our deadness. This is how we know that we're dead, are these these three things that contribute to that, and, uh, and, and, and so you can, if you look around in our society, what world value is consistently reinforced? So here's a question for you because it's going to take us to the next point. What world value is consistently reinforced, especially in America? What makes the devil the devil? And then what's, what's fundamentally wrong with every one of us? So what is the work of society, Satan, and this sinful self? Let me give you a hint here. What makes the devil the devil? The devil, Second Timothy 3.6, it talks about do not uh, put in the position of leadership a recent convert because they will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a hint of what we're talking about. Here's your answer to the next fill in the blank. The human heart is profoundly self-centered. So what does our society, particularly Americans, we've, we promote self-centeredness. We're all about self-centeredness. Really, you're number one. You deserve a break. You know, all the different little slogans and all the things that are said to us, you deserve that. You've earned that. We make it all about us. That's what caused Satan to fall, conceit. Conceit, when you look in uh, Philippians 2, it talks about conceit. Conceit, conceit is, the, the Greek word is, uh, what is the, what I, I just kind of went out of my mind just as I was about to tell you that, but it's… Uh, Empty empty glory or vain glory is what it is, yeah. So it's empty of glory. So it's out of an emptiness. You're looking and you're clamoring for people to make much of you because you're empty inside, because you're disconnected with the one that is, is supposed to make you full. And that's, uh, that's part of it. So the human nature, and then so, of course, it's our natural inclination apart from Christ. So the human heart is profoundly self-centered. In verse 3, look at your… Uh, look at their… The Bible, once again, that verse in your Bible, if you've got it there, or iPhone or iPad, where it says the flesh, the word for the flesh is not the body, so you want to live according to the passions of your flesh. It's actually talking about about your self-centeredness, egocentric. You're, You're focused on you and you alone. It's all about you. You make life all about you. Martin Luther actually defined it as... He said it was being curved in on ourselves. In fact, listen to what he said. He said, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly wishes to use all things, even God, for its own sake. So we are so curved in on ourselves that we will even use God for our own sake. So people can actually, you know, supposedly convert to Christianity, but it's not about God, it's all about them and about God serving them. Self-centeredness can make you a really, really bad person, and we've seen that, but listen to this. This is where people, a lot of people miss it. It can make you a really, really, really good person also, that you can help people not for helping them, but you're actually helping yourself because you're making yourself feel better by helping them. It's not so much about them as much as it is about you. How would you know whether or not you're helping people for your own purposes? It's when you probably don't get the approval or the acceptance or the affection or affirmation that you're, you're striving for. And then you say, well, if that's how they're going to treat me, then I'm out of here. Or I'm not going to do that. So it's just evidence that, it's, well, it was all about you anyway. And, uh, and so you can be a really, really bad person or a really, really good person. The Pharisees were really, really, really good people. They lived by the law. You can be a legalist You can be a very moral and virtuous person, but it not be about God, but be motivated out of ego, out of fear and pride. And that's fundamentally what's wrong with us is this self-centeredness, the deadness that's promoted by society, Satan, our sinful nature, is self-centeredness. In fact, this is what's interesting about our society. Here's another point that I think you need to understand is that helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex, this person feels really bad about themselves, so helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck because all you're doing is harnessing their self-centeredness in a different way. You don't cure an inferiority complex with a superiority complex. All you're doing is you're focusing on self. That's the problem. Both are the result of what is fundamentally wrong with us, self-centeredness. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, more enslaving than the unsmiling concentration on self. How am I looking? How am I feeling? How am I doing? They snub me. They hurt me. I can't believe they would say that to me. It's just this preoccupation with self, and there's nothing nothing more enslaving. In fact, there's two sides of the same coin called pride, and the one is uh, boasting, I deserve admiration because of what I've accomplished or achieved or acquired. Hey, everybody, look at me. It's the reason why some, some guys and gals dress a certain way or behave a certain way, or drive certain cars. They want people to look at them because they're vain glory. They're empty of glory. They're clamoring for some kind of approval or achievement or acceptance. And that's our fallen condition. We make life about ourselves. I gave you the one side. One side is boasting. The other side is self-pity. Very subtle. And we deserve admiration because of how much we've suffered. It's still preoccupation on self. So whether it's boasting or self-pity, woe is me. You know, I deserve more admiration because of all that I've gone through. And we get ticked off at people because they don't respond to us appropriately. Let me give you an illustration of this. I'm not a golfer. Any golfers in the house? Guys like to golf? If you had more money or you guys like golfing, cool. If you you had more money and more time, you'd like to golf. But I'm not a golfer. I don't think golf will will be in heaven. Uh, because heaven is a perfect place. It's a perfect place where there'll be no lying, cheating, or cussing. So how could golf be in heaven? Okay? There's no way that golf could be in heaven because that's how I play the game, lying, cheating, and cussing. So I just have to stay away from the game. But uh, I don't know if you guys watch the Masters. I don't watch much golf, but I kind of follow this a little bit in, in the Masters uh, recently. Who won the Masters? Bubba Watson. I told my wife, I said, yeah, I think some English guy won the, uh, won the Masters. She goes, his name's Bubba. <laughs> and then I listened to the guy talk. I go, yeah, you're right. He's from the South, isn't he? <laughs> and I said, he's from Great Britain or something like that. And so I, it was interesting. I, I watched online this last week when he received the uh, award. Did anybody see that award when he received the award? And this is what he said. He was pretty excited about it. But when he got to this one little part, he goes, Man, this is really cool and all that, but I want to thank my Lord and Savior. And then he just almost broke down. I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's almost like he was so overwhelmed with the reality of his Savior, Jesus Christ. That, yeah, this this award was important to him, but not near as important as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, contrast that. And, and in fact, I I looked at some interviews with him, and it's an interesting thing, and I've got a quote here. Is actually from CNN just this last week as it relates to him. But contrast him with Tiger Woods, who's throwing golf clubs, cussing, mad, angry. Which one seems to have a, 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 a sense of fullness and they play the game out of fullness, and the other one tends to Tiger Woods tends to be be playing out of a deficit, grap, grappling for, trying his best to fill this emptiness, vain, vain glory, empty of glory. It's interesting, uh, May 4th, a couple days ago, 2012, CNN, they said even by Bubba Watson's unpredictable standards, his decision to pull out of this month's Players' Championship to spend more time with his family is an unusual one. The Masters' Champion revealed he is skipping one of golf's biggest tournaments often referred to as the fifth major with 9.5 million total prize money to spend quality time with wife Angie and their recently adopted two-month-old son it seems the prestigious PGA tour event boasting a whopping 1.7 million prize for his for its winner wasn't enough to tear bubba away from baby And then he tweeted this. This is what it said. It quoted this tweet that he had sent out. I feel blessed and excited that I get to spend quality time with Caleb and Angie in the next few weeks. I am lucky to play golf for a living. It allows me to pick my own schedule. So what does that tell you a little bit about his life? He's not driven by the money, is he? In fact, he just, he loves his family, and he's actually, he would choose his family over even the game of golf, but I believe that he would also, it seems that he would choose his savior even over the game of golf, and he, and I understood that he just likes playing the game of golf, whether he won or lost, he just likes playing, he just, it's challenging, it's a lot of fun. Isn't that interesting? And what a great attitude. Now, like I said, you contrast that with like a guy like Tiger Woods, there's, there's a Vainglory, there's an, there's an emptiness inside of him as he's trying to fill. in this guy, no, I'm not, don't fix your eyes on Bubba Watson, the author and the finisher of your faith, okay? <laughs> fix your eyes on Jesus. I'm just saying that this, I mean, this guy could crash and burn next week. I don't know how much of a Christian he is. It seems like he's, he's pretty solid. He seems like he's got all of his ducks in a row and everything's kind of lined up the way it should be and I think it comes out of his relationship with God. And here's how it comes out of his relationship with God. He already knows who He is. His identity is is a done deal in Jesus. Therefore, He plays the game of God, and lives His life out of fullness as opposed to out of emptiness trying to fill the void. Does that make sense? So fundamentally, what is wrong with us is that we're self-centered and we're self-centered because there's an emptiness. We're empty of glory. And what we need to do is come back to Christ and let Him fill us up and then we live our lives according to that, out of that, out of that fullness. So the cure to uh, self-centeredness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your heart is full of the glory of Christ. So no self so So here's what the first question in answering, so why do we need to be made alive? Is because we're basically self-centered, and we need to be made alive through the glory of Christ and understanding all of who He is and filling our hearts up with Him, and then then we begin to do life quite differently. So here's the next question. What does it mean to be made alive? Verses 8 through 10, let us know that. And the first fill-in-the-blank on your notes is that it is a gift from God And we saw that in verse 5 and then verse 8. For by grace are you saved. For by grace are you saved. So what is grace anyway? Do you guys know what grace is? It's a really important word. Grace is what? Yell it out to me. Okay, unearned or unmerited favor. So the favor of God. And the favor of God, I want you to think of the favor of God as this. The favor of God is just not like he kind of, you know, nods at us. Oh, yeah, okay, you're cool. But it's uh, it's actually more than that. It's his empowering presence in our life, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. So it's his very presence. It's it's God, in our lives, can't earn it, and that's pretty cool. That's what that's what it's uh, what it's about. In fact, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's loving and giving precedes our believing. I've heard a lot of people say this, okay, I'm going to start going to church, I'll get my act together, and then it's almost as if they're going to win God's approval in some way. It doesn't work that way. This is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. And by the way, anyone who would make the claim that all religions are equally right is not listening very well to what each one teaches because this is the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity as compared to all the major cults and religions. Religion basically says this, the good are in, the bad are out. You've heard me say this before, the good are in, so you meet the standard, you're in, if you can't, you're out, you're not part of this religious group. For instance, Buddhism, eightfold path. Islam, five pillars. See, these are the standards, you've got to live up, you've got to do these things. It's about your works, works righteousness. Judaism, Ten Commandments. Mormonism, exalted to Godhood through works. They're heavy duty on works. Jehovah Witnesses, earn it through door-to-door work. Hinduism, reincarnate until you get it right. How many times have you had to do that? None, because we don't believe that. Okay. Good. Good answer. I'm glad you, you answered it right. Scientology. Hitch a ride on a spaceship with an alien. Actually, there's this work with an auditor on your hang-ups until you achieve clear. So, so if you look at all the major religions of our world today, they would all fit into a category of works righteousness. The good are in, bad are out, but Christianity is completely opposite. And this is what was so stunning to me when I began to understand this. It was really freeing. It's not based on on my works. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me on the cross. And that ravished my heart. It got got so hold of my heart, it began to transform my life. And so Christianity says this the humble are in and the proud are out. All you need is need. And some people don't have that because they're too full of pride. See, that's what separates Christianity from all the... So that's what he's saying. It's a gift. Being made alive is a gift from God. And then it's through faith. That's your next life. It's through faith in Christ. What is faith? Notice he says in verse 3, through faith, through faith. What is faith? I mean, I hear people all the time say, yeah, I believe in God. I don't think they have faith. I think they just have this concept of God, but He's not a reality in their life. What does it mean to have Faith. Romans 5.1, one of the cross references I put there, we are justified by faith. Because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access to God. We have God in our lives. Hebrews 11.1 1 and 6 define for us faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. Whoever, without faith it is impossible to please God... Whoever comes to Him, if you want to have an encounter with God, must believe that He exists, and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. So it it has to do with some affection and, and passion towards God, or really seeking after God. John 6.35, it says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never go hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never go thirsty. So there's this kind of satisfaction involved in that. James 2 26 talks about faith without works is dead. So it kind of gives you. So when you look at all of those together, this is how I would define faith. Faith is more than agreement with facts in the head about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. It's more than that. But it's, it is also an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. So you begin to cultivate this appetite for God. You want Him more than anything. You will starve to death if you don't get Him. That's that's the attitude of faith. And then it goes even beyond that. It is lived out through your hands, your actions, by wanting to stir up that same appetite for God and others. So that your interaction with others, you would do it in such a way that it would stir up that appetite within them for God. That's faith. That's what he's talking about here. So it's a gift from God through faith in Christ, leading to a life that is... And let me give you some characteristics of that life so we can kind of look at our own life to see if indeed I've entered into this this gift. I keep having to go over here and look at the clock because I don't have a clock up here. It got broken last week in the outdoor. That sun was too hot for it, I guess. So, if I go over by about an hour or two, can't blame me. Clock's broken. I'll look. I'll make sure. Um, so, what does it mean leading to a life that is, did you notice in verse 9 it says, not by works so that no one may boast. We are sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace are not proud. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you understand grace, everybody look up here just for a minute, you've got to get this. If you understand grace, if you're truly a sinner saved by grace, this eliminates boasting. You're not going to boast. Now, every, everyone boasts. Every one of us boasts. Everyone is looking for something to give them a sense of value, worth, strength to face life. Bubba Watson seems to be boasting in God and in his family. He's boasting in that more than the money that he would make in the next tournament. So you kind of see what people boast in. Um, It was interesting. I was channel surfing a couple weeks ago, and I came across the Dove Awards. You guys know what the Dove Awards are? And this rap artist, uh, hip-hop artist, uh, Lecrae. You guys know who Lecrae is? Man, the guy has some rock-solid lyrics to his stuff. Anyway, he receives this award, and he gets up there, and he goes, hey, I'm, I'm not up here minimizing this award in the least, bit. I really appreciate it. I think it's great. But this doesn't even come close to knowing the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, having a surpassing knowledge of Jesus And He's was almost like, this is nothing compared to knowing Him. And I was like, yeah, And then he goes, you know what, God gave me this gift, I'm just thankful that I can use it, but don't focus on the gift, focus on the gift giver. Let's focus on God, because he gave me the gift to honor him. And I was thinking, yeah! The guy was boasting. He wasn't boasting about what he had, he was boasting about Jesus. And he did it in such a way, my heart was stirred up as I watched it. I was like, I want to know the Jesus you know. And I do know him, but it just stirred up my appetite. So you could see what he was boasting in. That's what he's talking about. And in fact, when you encounter Christ, when you get to know him, you no longer boast in the, the acquisitions, the accomplishments, uh, whatever it is in your life that you boasted in before as your sense of identity. In fact, it says, Paul says in Galatians 6 14, Man, never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, to whom the world is crucified, to me, and I to the world. He says, Man, the cross, Jesus, what he did for me, nothing compares. Nothing competes. Nothing completes me like that. So that's why he's boasting him. Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24 says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he knows God. And, and don't, isn't that what we boast in? Oh man, he's really smart. Or wow, look at the money he's got. Or look how strong they are. Man, he can slam that ball. He's a unbelievable athlete. We kind of make a much out of that. But I said, don't boast about that stuff. Boast about Jesus. Boast about the fact that you know Him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and we're going to get into this a little bit more next week. We're going to talk about that because we're going to talk about harmony and what creates the conflict in our relationships, and it really has a lot to do with this boasting. But 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? What is he saying? He's just saying everything you have has been ultimately given to you by God. Yeah, but I worked hard. Well, your ability to work hard was given to you by God. I mean, everything. Um, so, So this is what it does to our hearts. It begins to change us. If we are sinners saved by grace, we really understand grace. It is going to be life liberating. There's going to be a contentment versus a competition and a comparing. Your performance is going to be motivated out of fullness as opposed to an emptiness. You don't have to prove anything to anybody, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. You're already complete in Jesus Christ. You perform, and it's nothing wrong with performance, it's nothing wrong with getting involved in sports or any of these things, but you don't use it to fill an emptiness inside. It's just an opportunity to put on display the, the glory of Christ through your athleticism or, or through whatever you're, whatever you're doing. That's cool. But don't confuse the two. Don't try to fill an emptiness because when things don't go wrong in that sport or that event or that attainment of whatever it is you're trying to attain, you're going to be devastated. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be throwing, you know, you're going to be throwing those golf clubs around and cussing at your caddy or whatever and being upset. A little bit like the Tiger Woods. Because it's not going your way. Okay, you little spoiled rotten brat. You know, you're just empty inside. And that's what it is. You're so self-focused and self-absorbed. It's, it's all about you. Rather than saying, man, my life is filled up with Jesus. I can't believe I have Him in my life. Here's the next one. It's soul satisfying. There's a gratitude versus an entitlement. When people ask you, how are things going, you say, better than I deserve. Because no matter how bad life gets, if you've got Jesus, you've got more than enough, and you know that. Because you don't follow Him because He makes life better. You follow Him because He's better than life. He's the trump card that overcomes anything you got him in your life so you don't go around with an entitlement by the way a lot of people will come to Christ because they're wanting to use him and you can typically tell when they're wanting to use him when they don't get what they want from him because then they defect from the faith but people who really encountered the best thing about the Christian life and that is the Lord Jesus Christ they're not going to defect from the faith when suffering hits in fact it's gonna they're gonna shine brighter in the midst of that because they know even more so is that he's he's enough here's the next one it's heart healing there's forgiveness Versus bitterness, So it's life liberating, contentment versus competition and comparing, soul satisfying, gratitude versus entitlement, heart healing, which is forgiveness versus bitterness. And by the way, I, I know this is harsh, and I have to kind of work through this myself, but your forgiveness of others will never reach the level of what Christ has already forgiven you. Does that make sense? So a lot of times when you can't forgive others, it's because you haven't entered in fully to what, how, how much He's forgiven you. So that's what you have to go back to. You can't muster up more forgiveness. Oh, I'm going to grip my teeth and try to forgive them. No, you need to go back to see what Christ has done for you. You need to see how uh, it was indispensable, how indispensable and costly His forgiveness of you was. And to the degree that begins to, begins to you know, hit you is to the degree that you'll begin to be able to forgive others in your own life and then uh, the next one is that it is it is heart. Oh, I said that it's heart healing, forgiveness versus bitterness. And then it's relationship reconciling, respect versus disdain. Whether you are the offender or the offendee, you will always seek to build a bridge. You'll be willing to take a few hits for the team, even when some people are mean. You just love them. You forgive them. No, that's not loving to let them hurt you. You need to speak the truth to them. You know what I'm saying? It's never loving to allow someone to sin against you. So you're going to speak the truth. You're going to do it in a loving way. If you have to distance yourself, you do that. Here's the next one it's God glorifying, God absorbed versus self absorbed. Man, you are just so filled up with God that you want Him more than anything. And you just want to put Him on display because it ain't about you, it's about Him. So that answers that. What does it mean to be made alive? So let's answer this next question How are we made alive? Verses 4 through 7, make that clear. So let me walk you through that. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms. So when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I am raised up and seated with Him in heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? It meant more to them in their days than what it means to us. Because it's really kind of a metaphor. Ancient people understood this metaphor perfectly. If you were the conquering hero, and when you came home, you were seated at the right hand of the throne, it was a place of greatest honor. This is the most honored place in the universe, and we are seated in that place with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's past tense, so it's happened. It can't mean that we have been raised from the dead or that we are literally there because we're not, but it's actually we're legally seated there in heavenly places. It's a a legal standing. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are treated as if you had done all that Jesus Christ had done. In other words, God delights in you, honors you, accepts you, rejoices over you as he does his own son. That's what water baptism is. I mean, what that was unbelievably glorious last week when we saw 50 people make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. Wasn't that wonderful? just amazing. And what they were doing is that they're identifying with this, it's a, it's a biblical term called substitutionary atonement. They're identifying with the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He took my place on the cross, and uh, I take His place kind of on the throne right there. I receive, you know, all of His accolades from the Father and all of His medals and In honor, and that's that's what it is. That's why we have that right standing before God. If you understood that, if we lived in the reality of it, nothing would ever get us down if we really understood the implications of that. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's on your notes. So that gives us the next couple points. We're almost finished here. So sin is me substituting myself for God, So every time I sin, I'm playing God. It's like, I know better than you, God. I'm trampling on his love and wisdom. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then salvation is God substituting himself for me. Did you notice in verse 3, it's it's a bit subtle, but did you notice it says there that we were, where is that? Oh, yeah, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What was it saying, children of wrath? Whose wrath? Anybody in God's wrath. God's wrath was upon us because of our sinfulness. But all the wrath of God was placed upon Jesus on the cross. But we were children of wrath before we were made alive, and now all that wrath was taken on the cross through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's not, that's actually uh, Galatians 2.20. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that, so that we could be the righteousness of God, so we could stand before God completely righteous. Um, man, I had a lot of people ask me about my hand this last weekend, so I'm, I'm working on about, about three different stories here, is that uh, one, I was in a cage fight, and uh, it was for missions, and so that didn't work out, and then somebody said, oh, you got in a bar fight again, huh? And that was some, one of you, okay, that wasn't very nice. But then, uh, and then another story that I've been working on is that my wife slammed my hand in the door multiple times, car door, car door, because I wouldn't let her spend all of our money shopping. And uh, you know, the thing that really bothers me about this is that, uh, man, I can't do any dishes for at least five to six years. Uh, And you know how much I want to help my wife out around the house. It just really breaks my heart. Or maybe he just said five to six weeks I got to wear this, but... I heard five or six years. But uh, I, I, most people don't know this, but I have what is called Dupuytren's contractures. It's an inherited disease of the hands. And it's on the tendons, and what happens is that it, it, it's inherited through Scandinavian descent. I'm Finnish, So on my hands, on the tendons, there's these cords that grow, and then they, what they do is then they begin to contract, and they bring my fingers down. So most people didn't notice, but my, on my left hand, my hand was like this. Anybody ever notice that? Okay, there's a few. Most people don't notice it until I say something. And so my hand was like that. It made it real good for when I blessed people. But other than that, it was really hard. It really, you know, it bothered me. And uh, I shouldn't make light of it, but, but they have a new procedure rather than... Um, surgery, which is really hard to recover from, new procedure where they, they put a needle in that cord, and they shoot enzymes into it, and, uh, and then they let it sit for 48 hours, and then I go back, to the, go back in to the doctor, and then they take my fingers, that are like this, and then they pop it. Ow. This is what the nurse said to us, said to me. She said, you're the last patient for that day because the popping noise is so loud and you'll be screaming so loud that we didn't want to frighten the patients. And I said, thanks. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, my wife and I went away and we just laughed. You know, we laughed about it. And it was pretty painful. It was pretty painful. But one of the thing that was most painful about it was that was the lidocaine, the Novocaine they shot in my hand because I said, you want painkiller? You know I do. You got some alcohol I can drink with it? (laughs) So anyway, the guy took that. My wife's in there watching. Give it to him. Give it to him. That's what she was doing. Pray for my wife. But they took that and they popped it. It was like, boom, it popped. It was loud. It wasn't as loud. and, And it hurt like crazy. And then my skin, because it kind of fused, it ripped open. the doctor said, wow, that's really bleeding a lot. I don't think he's supposed to say that, okay? You don't say that to a patient. That's really bleeding a lot. I didn't respond like that because I've I've seen bleeding before. Okay, I was a paramedic. But I don't think they're supposed to say that. But he was kind of shocked. He's like, whoa, what are we going to do? Well, do something, dude. Uh, And it was terribly painful. I mean, it was painful. But you know what? I was thinking about that. It was just in this hand and. I'm recovering, and I think I'm going to have a greater range of motion now. Praise God for that. But I thought about my Savior. I thought about my Savior taking nails to his hands and his feet for me. This is so minor compared to what he went through. He took a crown of thorns that was shoved down on his head, and blood just gushed down over his face. He took a spear to the side for you and for me. He took our place. It was amazing. It was amazing. There's a, there's a video clip I want to show you. We're kind of running out of time, but I'm going to show you this video clip anyway. It's about five minutes, so it's going to take us, okay, and then I'll wrap it up. I'll give you the last point. It'll, it'll be cool. So this is actually from the movie uh, Man on Fire, and it's, it's part of that movie where uh, he's a bodyguard and she gets abducted, uh, little PETA, this little girl, and... Um, and at the end, he makes an exchange with these guys that have abducted her for ransom, and he takes her place and releases her. And it's really a beautiful picture of what took place on the cross with us and our Savior. Watch this, and we'll wrap it up. Nothing will take you out of your self centeredness like having your heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus' unselfishness on the cross for you. Heart smitten. Pretty amazing. When how lost you were and how costly it was to rescue you, that is, the cross hits you, game over. You'll never be the same forever living for His glory. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? As I stated, we're going to talk about harmony next week, about what gets in the way of our harmony within our relationships. And that's where we're going. God, we, we love you so much. Thank you for meeting with us here today. Thank you for reminding us that sin is, is us substituting ourselves for you and that you substituted yourself for us to give us fullness of life. May we live in the fullness of this life, fully alive in you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.